what what fuels me is I'm I'm like a developer at heart. Like if if I can find a way through my skills, my experience, my conversation, whatever, my coaching ability, whatever, to help somebody else in whatever facet of their life, like that to me is my purpose. Crafting our purpose is a long-term endeavor. It's unlikely that we'll wake up one morning and realize who we are or what we're meant to do. Our beliefs, our values, our interests, and our identity evolve over time. My guest today is Diana Chung. Diana is a director of sales at EF Educational Tours. And her and I talk about a variety of topics, including developing her identity as a Korean-Canadian, stumbling into an incredibly successful sales career, and being a female leader in what's typically a male-dominated field. I always enjoy talking to Diana. We cover a lot of ground. Um, she's been a good friend for years now and brings so much energy and authenticity that I think you'll hear through our conversation. So I hope you enjoy today's conversation with Diana Chung. Hi, Diana. Woot. Hi, Naka. <laughs> I'm so stoked for this. Yeah, I'm really excited too. We've been, uh, we've been scheduling this for a while now and um, we've also known each other for a long, long time. So I'm really excited that I get to... Uh, uh, interview you and then have this conversation about your your ikigai in life yeah totally brother from another mother <laughs> um so i just want to start this conversation with the very beginning kind of taking us all the way back to um where you started and you know just tell me a little bit about what kind of what kind of kid you were where'd you grow up Bit of the Diana Chung origin story. Origin story, yeah. Well, I was a really fat, chunky baby at a healthy seven and a half pounds, Etobicoke General Hospital, Ontario, Canada. Um, yeah. So, I yeah, my origin story. That's such an interesting question. Um, I obviously don't remember my my birth, but my mom obviously does. Uh, yeah, but I was like a healthy, chunky baby. I to Paul and Helen Chung. Shout out, mom and dad. Um, I, I think, I think from what I remember, and I had a, like a little sister who was born a little bit less than a year after me. And when, when I watch our family videotapes of the type of kid I was, um, I was really, uh, all over the place. I was like fat and chubby and chased my mom around when she had shrimp crackers on her all the time was like constantly eating. Um, I loved watching TV, even though I had no idea what was going on. Um, and I liked to dance. Uh, dad would just turn on music and I had zero rhythm and my chunky baby body would just move to the rhythm um and so I would say I was I was I was pretty happy kid like you know fun and outgoing and like any nor normal toddler um and I'd like to also say that I was an amazing big sister uh but you can ask my sister that question I'm pretty <laughs> sure I was so from the early days there was kind of this food loving aspect to you would you say hundred percent hundred percent like ask my parents they'll just say I've loved food since I was born it's kind of gross <laughs> yeah um all right so healthy active dancing uh dancing kid what what did you want to be growing up looking back at your your early days oh my god I don't even remember I don't even know I can't even remember my earliest childhood days dreaming of actually being anything concrete it wasn't until I was more in high school that I started to solidify that I mean my my secret secret career dream was to be a k-pop star aka Korean pop star 
um, that was always inside of me somewhere. Never really came to fruition. And then when I hit 21, I was like way too old to be a true K-pop star. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I can't, I can't really remember having a specific career path as until I was in high school. Um, and then when I hit high school, I had my mindset on being a lawyer. And, I, and also, like, I don't really know where that came from. I think I just thought I enjoyed law or I would enjoy law and would be good at it. And that was the first time I sort of solidified a potential career path for me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Part of, um, I think what's, what's interesting is the Korean culture must have been like a big part of you growing up. Yeah, totally. And I don't think it's a unique story, like especially in Canada and like, um, the household I grew up in was bilingual. Um, you know, we called it, uh, what we call it? It's, it's like Konglish. It's a mix of Korean. It's called ah, Konglish. Okay. It's a mix of Korean and English. Um, so when my parents would talk to me, it would, it, it was it didn't, to anyone else listening, it wouldn't make any sense because it would just flow in and out of Korean and English all the right. time, but it was so normal for me. And so uh, to me that that language also um, translated to the type of upbringing and values and traditions I also grew up in. It's, it was this, the, the very cr traditionalist Korean side, but also a, a open and diverse Canadian side. Mm -hmm. So it was interesting yet conflicting at times, I would say. So tell me more about that. What, what, was, what was interesting? What was conflicting? What meshed well? Uh, there's so many things. Um, I mean, the, the biggest things I can think of is I, you know, because my parents were bilingual, I think it was really tough for them to enforce Korean on all of us children. Um, I remember like kicking and screaming as my parents dragged me to like Korean Sunday school. I absolutely hated it. Um, <laughs> uh, so there was that. There was also too like this, this struggle when you're young. And um, I, I grew up in Aurora. Like I was born in Tobacco, but we moved to Aurora when I was quite young. And now Aurora is like crazy, crazy diverse. But back then I was the only, I think, immigrant family, one of the only immigrant families living up there and going to school there. Everyone else was Caucasian. Um, it didn't really come from immigrant, immigrant backgrounds. And so uh, what, what, I, what I liked about having a Korean background is it did make me unique. Mm -hmm. I felt like at, at school and in my community, and I liked having a little bit of a different cultural identity. Like I had a lot of pride in that. Um, I also had a lot of pride in the fact that I, you know, as Koreans, we did things a little bit differently. We had different customs at home. Like, you know, I would have to bow every New Year's Eve to my grandparents and my friends would never understand why. Um, but, but on the flip side, so I had a lot of pride, but I also had a lot of shame um, around that too, because it, it was even as small things as like bringing rice and soup for lunch to school. Mm. Um, I, I was embarrassed right? Because people would be like, what is that? I've never seen that. Um, you know, you feel a little bit outcasted. Um, or even if I had to explain to my friends things, decisions that my parents had made that they couldn't understand because of a cultural barrier. Like my parents wouldn't let me go to late night movies um, until I was in first year university, mm. um, which to my friends growing up was so odd. Uh, but to my parents, it's like, that's just how Koreans do it. Like, you know, that's, how it is so yeah it was it was really interesting and again like I don't think it's um I think a lot of people probably go through this and probably experience this but yeah I would say I would say 
pride and also shame and embarrassment and conflict were the mm-hmm. are the words I would use to describe how I felt about that sort of time period. Definitely yeah. up to my early adulthood. And that's such a a tough balance of emotions and feelings that you have to experience through teenage years, you know, when you're already like trying to deal with how do you stay, you know, uh, how how do you be popular or how do you fit in or, you know, how do you make friends? Um, How did you make sense of it, you know, at at that time in your life? I I don't think I did. I think I, I just tried to suppress it, especially in my high school years. I just tried to be like the popular girls. That's literally what I tried to be like. Um, and so it, it was, it's crazy. It's, um, I, w- I would do a lot of things to try and um, look like them, act like them, like the same things they liked, you know, you know, even small things like straightening my hair or um, wearing Abercrombie and Fitch and uh, American <laughs> Eagle. I'm so stereotyping right now. I hope I'm not offending anybody. Uh, but that literally was what I would try and do, right? Right. right. Um, and oh, and like completely not, or trying to push away the Korean side of me, like trying to really resist that side. So even when there was a few Korean people in our school in the later half of my high school years, I didn't want to be friends with these people. Um, I don't know why. I think I was just trying to suppress that side of me. I didn't want, I didn't want to be associated with that sort of Korean identity part of me a lot of through high school because I felt like it would outcast me even more than I already felt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was your, your high school years and then moving into university, did that shift for you or time I think I did a complete 180 and I don't even know what the trigger was actually you know what the trigger was it now that I think about it I started really getting into watching Korean dramas I have a very sad life um no, that sounds amazing <laughs> Korean dramas are awesome Korean dramas now they're all the rage like k-pop and Korean dramas are all the rage so I'm super cool now but back then it was I don't think it made any sense to anybody else <laughs> Um, no, but yeah, it was in university. I, yeah, I started getting really into Korean dramas. Like my parents watched Korean dramas growing up all the time. So I was constantly exposed to them, but yeah, I just started turning on Korean dramas and then suddenly started to become super fascinated with my Korean culture and language and all that kind of stuff. And that was like the big catalyst for me in university. So the 180 I did is I started taking Korean classes. I started researching more Korean stuff, watching more movies, listening to more music, um, wanting to date more Koreans. That was a mm. weird switch because I always only had been into white guys before. Um, yeah, huge 180 is what happened in university. Wait, so what What caused that switch? The Korean dramas. I'm not joking. It's just literally, it's <laughs> Korean dramas. Okay. There's, no, there's so, nothing deep about the trigger. So what? what about Korean dramas make them so appealing to somebody searching for their identity i have no idea because they're the worst (laughs) they have terrible storylines um (laughs) so your advice would be if somebody is dealing with something very similar with dan right now just put a stack of uh korean drama dvds or send them to netflix and and watch some (laughs) some some shows there correct and it'll change your life you'll figure out your identity that's correct any any specific korean drama shows you would recommend oh the ones i used to watch were super old school yes i have two so the first one is called full house so it stars this guy his name's rain people will know him is really really famous korean pop star okay um 
and the other one is called Tongi. So it's about it's a, like a period piece. Oh, it's cool. about this this servant girl named Tongi. She falls in love with the king, and that's forbidden. You know, it's so deep. It's deep stuff. <laughs> All right. Okay. This is fascinating to me. But we'll um, so. So the dramas made a big difference because I assume, and, and forget, correct me if I'm wrong, but they gave you a connection to your culture a little bit, right? It did. And, and also too, like I'm, I'm joking around about it as like the, the dramas being the precipice of me um, dialing into my culture. But I think the other piece too is I just matured. Um, I grew up and I, I didn't feel like the need to fit in anymore. I felt a little bit like I knew who I was or had the confidence to be okay with who I was. And, and I think that also helped me to, to move back into the Korean space and go, I don't have any, I don't have as much shame around being Korean or feel like I have to hide the interest I have with my Korean culture or the language or the food or whatever. And so with the maturity, I think also came this sort of exploration as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, I love that. Um, so you're in now. Now we're in university here. You're um, tell tell me a little bit about where you went to university, what you studied, um, what 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 that part of your life was like for you. Yeah, I uh, I went to York University. Um, I say that with the, this tone because if people listening to this podcast grew up in the Toronto or the GTA area, I think York has like a certain reputation. Um, I did try to apply to other universities, just FYI. Um, I, so I don't know this reputation. What is the reputation of York University? Like York eats with a fork. You know, you haven't heard that expression? I don't it understand. Just, <laughs> it just essentially means that people who go to York are, I guess, leftovers or, you know, not as... It's not considered one of the more prestigious universities. Like the more prestigious ones are your Westerns, your Queen, your even U of T to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. But when I was applying to universities, York, York isn't the top three that most people from my school would have chosen to go to. I think okay. that's what I mean. Okay, that's helpful. Great. Yeah. So you're, you're, at, you're at York. You're, yeah. you're, 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 <laughs> you're not feeling like a leftover. You're feeling <laughs> like, okay, I'm here. I'm, I'm here to learn. What, what did you study? Uh, yes, also a very useless um, degree. So I double majored in history and English literature. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe it wasn't useless. I just, I'm just saying that because I, I took it because I was super interested in it. L- less about where it would take me in a career. But at that time, too, I also decided I wanted to move into law school. So I thought that the writing skills from that degree would potentially help. Gotcha. Yeah. Was there a particular draw to history or, or English? I just enjoyed it. Like I enjoyed history and English uh, in, in high school. I really liked to read. I really liked um, learning about different types of history, especially East Asian history, World War history. Um, and I just liked it. So I decided, why don't I just study something I like? And that's what I did. Gotcha. I hate, and I also hated math, which goes against who I should be as an Asian. But uh, bucking all the trends, and I'm bucking all the trends. I can't do math. I cannot add. I can't do anything. I have a self confession too. As as part Asian, I am woefully poor at my math. (laughs) Yeah, we. Yeah. So. I, I know you you traveled to Korea for a trip to actually I did. teach. What, what, did that happen during university or was that afterwards? 
Yeah, it actually happened twice. So I went to Korea twice. Um, once in the beginning years of university, um, after the K-drama <laughs> stuff happened, um, I, I became really fascinated with the idea of going to Korea because at that point I'd never gone before because I was born and raised in Canada. And so I, I just randomly, I took my sister along with me the first time. We went for three months. Um, we went to Yonsei University in Seoul, Korea, South Korea, and uh, we just like had a blast, had a great time. And then the second time I went, which I would say is a more significant time, is when I just graduated university and I decided I no longer, to, no longer wanted to become a lawyer. It just wasn't my path. Mm. And I picked up my bags and with no plan, I went to Korea for over a year and decided to teach English, which a lot of people do. Um, and that's what I did. And it was it that I would say that's, that was a fairly fam- transformative trip for me. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me more about that trip. Why, why was it transformational? What made it special? Yeah, I think for a lot of different reasons. Um, I think the big ones is it was my first time at the age of 23 away from home. Because again, I went to I stayed at home when I went to university. I stayed at home my whole life. And so to break free and create my own independence and be an adult, you know, like clean my house, make my bed, cook my food. Not that my mom did all those things for me when I was living with her, but you know what I mean? Um, paying rent, paying bills. Um, so that was one like true freedom mm-hmm. as an adult, as a young adult. And I think the second too, like it was a huge confidence boost for me that year. Um, because if you go back to the identity struggle I've been having all the way up to this point and continue to have, um, it was the first time I, I felt like I was truly understanding my value, who I was as a person, the things I cared about, the things I was good at, um, what drew people to me mm. um, all through this year. And it was... I don't even know what, what happened during this year. It's just like a lot of different things, like making new friends, trying new things, um, living in an area which I can speak the language, but I, I'm not fluent. I'm not, I'm not proficient enough to have a job in Korean. Mm. Um, and just finding my way in, a, in what, what to me, even though I'm growing up as Korean, is still foreign, a foreign mm. country to me. Um, so there's a lot of self-discovery. It was a lot of loneliness too, like, you know, living on your own for the first time in yeah. your life. Um, and it's a lot of new at once. Right. So it was transformative, but also it was very challenging at the same time. Was it challenging being in Korea, looking Korean, but not being from there? Yep. How did you, how'd you manage that, knowing that there is that kind of insider outsider experience you know that's such a good question like parts of it parts of it were fine because yeah i look i look korean my korean's good enough um it's like that part was all okay mm-hmm. uh but my struggle was and, and also i found a community that was just like me like 1.5 generation um like born and raised in the states or canada and went to korea so okay. i had a, i had a network but right. the hardest part for me was was some of the cultural pieces that I just did not identify with growing up in Canada Mm. right so again I don't mean to stereotype and this is just my experiences but you know Koreans or Korean culture um, very generally but but perception visuals they matter a lot in that culture there's a reason why they're the number one um, country for plastic surgery like there's a reason 
where that's derived from. And, and so I had a really hard time, um, even though I made some really good native Korean friends, I sometimes had a hard time understanding why um, people valued uh, certain things, like for example, the exterior so much, or the, you know, caring about the visual and the perception as much as they did. Um, and those were the things that I had a hard time with because they, they were also things that I grew up with that I, that I also had a hard time with. So obviously when I go to Korea, I still have a hard time with it. And to this day, I still, there's parts of that that I still don't identify with. Mm-hmm. Um, and also too, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit of a black sheep in Korean culture. Like I, you know, Koreans look at me and I don't look Korean, mm. um, traditionally Korean. And I, I, I'm just weird. Like I'm weird to Koreans. What is, what is not Korean mean? Oh man, should we go down this road? It's going to be a dark place. Um, uh, yes, I do want to go. <laughs> you know what we should do? Too bad this is a podcast because if we put up a photo of me and then my sister side by side, you would know exactly what I mean. Um, so my... let, me, let me take a guess. So it's, there's the, <laughs> the, the K-pop stars that I see on YouTube, right? Yes. And, they are beautiful. They are yes. what, like pale white skin, um, perfect long kind of sleek black hair. Yep. Um, you know, beautiful like subtle features with their face and their mouths, their eyes. Obviously, you know, great physique too. Um, that's the image I get from like a, a Korean ideal. Yeah. yeah. Nailed it, my good sir. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and for me, like, it's not, not even just the looks, like, I just don't look, I don't look like that. I also don't come across like that. Like, I don't have that sort of delicacy that's very valued in Korean society. I, I am very strong-willed. I'm very vocal. Um, you know, and, and it could come across a little bit bulldozing to people. Um, and I'm also super candid, and I sort of say things, anything that I want to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm also not afraid to be to joke around and be funny, not, not to say that Korean girls aren't funny, like lots of them are funny, um, but, but more that I didn't have what I felt was this sort of delicateness, this like lotus flower <laughs> sort mm-hmm. of right. persona that is very revered in Korean culture. And I didn't have that. I'm just not built that way. I've never have been. Um, that's been part of my identity crisis too, is like I grew up with a beautiful sister who who looks traditionally in Korean beauty standards, she is epitome of Korean beauty standard. Mm-hmm. And I, I just was not. Like, I remember going to family functions, uh, my sister and I standing side by side, um, and people being like, oh my God, Michelle, she's so beautiful. Um, and Diana, you look like a good girl. You know, you look like a smart girl. Like, I was a smart girl. Mm-hmm. You know, I, the one that, I had the good personality, quotations, you know what I mean? Right. Um, <laughs> And so that, that, was, that was also really interesting for me in Korea too, was, was debunking the self-perception I had that I wasn't pretty enough for mm-hmm. Korean standards or I wasn't Korean enough because my attitude was very Canadian. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually learned in, through my time in Korea that I actually could be myself and people still gravitated towards me. Um, and that was cool. That was really cool. Because mm-hmm. by that point, I hadn't, I, I didn't feel like I was beautiful enough, mm. according to Korean standards. Right, right. So coming back from that experience, how, how did you make, 
how did you make sense of that? How did you again kind of put the puzzle pieces together? Or was it one of those Lego blocks? You're like, okay, I'll just put that here for now. <laughs> Let's figure out yeah. who I am. Let's keep okay. suppress that one still. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, well, th that's the thing. So Korea was amazing in so many ways. Like I think I came back such changed human being. Like even my parents were like, who are you? Um, and I, I, I went through some serious reverse culture shock. Like why am I back? Did I make a wrong decision? Like this place sucks. Um, to, back to Canada. Back to Canada. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. I hate being here. Like, you know, you, you get used to an environment and you get used to a place and then you have to come back and adjust again. But I think what I came back realizing is one, like I had a ton more confidence in who I was and, and, and confidence that I could do things and make my own decisions and it would steer mm -hmm. me in the right direction. So I had built a much better gut. Um, and also too, I had, I had come back knowing or having at least a little bit of better direction of what I wanted to do with my life, not a job per se, um, but the impact I wanted to make um, in my career where I'd be spending 90% of my time. Um, so that I, that I had a lot more clarity on. And then, so the, the, the beauty standard standard piece, like, I think that will always, I came back a lot more confident about that unless that was less of a problem for me than it had been before I went to Korea. But I think that will still be always like a internal insecurity that a mm. lot of people struggle through and I will continue to struggle through and that's okay with it. I'm okay with that. Um, but it, it definitely wasn't as big as it used to be, which I think is a good thing. Mm -hmm. So you, so you mentioned this experience gave you a better sense of where you wanted to take your career. What, what yeah. was that for you? So one, I was like, can I swear on this? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> I guess this is totally just you and I. I was just like, fuck being a lawyer. That sounds boring as shit. Um, I definitely didn't want to do that anymore. Um, so that went out the window. My mom's still mad at me about that to today. Um, it's been like 10 years. <laughs> Sorry, mom. Um, but the clarity <laughs> I had, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, yeah, yeah she'll bring it up on my wedding day or my deathbed. Like it will still exist. Right. Um, but yeah, the clarity I had is one, I, I knew I wanted to work in education not as a teacher per se, but somewhere in the education sector. Because as I was teaching in Korea, I just loved teaching. I loved building curriculum. I loved spending time with kids. I loved doing that. Um, and I loved making an impact on, on youth too. I'd done that in university with my involvement with that charity. And, in, and then in Korea, I had I got more exposure to that. Um, and then and the other clear thing I knew I wanted to do was um, work in education with some sort of travel component mm. and not necessarily being like at a flight center and booking people's flights, which is a respectable job, but just not for me. Um, so, so one of those two education and travel. Um, I, I just, I, when I came back, I didn't know how to combine it yet, but I knew those, those were two worlds I wanted to step into in some way, if I could with a job. All right. So yeah. what happened next? What happened next is I was job hunting. Um, I was unemployed for a little while and uh, living at home again, which was hell. And I tried to, I got these, all these side gigs um, and I worked for uh, a place. I was kind of like Kumon, full circle. <laughs> <laughs> so I went there for a little while, but um, I actually ended up landing. It was like one of those things where right place, right time. I landed a job at me to we, which is where you and I met. So tell, tell, us, tell us about what me to we is. Really? You're going to make me a key message right now? No, I'm, I think a lot of people will be interested to know what, what Midui is. So. Yeah, Midui. 
Okay, let me let me go back to my key messaging days. Um, well, they're essentially I like I always describe them as a business with a conscience. Um, so they work in conjunction with We Charity, um, but essentially they they offer experiences like travel overseas, products um, in in order to help support international development overseas. Mm -hmm. And so what appealed to me about Me to We is I just sort of I, I remember when I came back I was job hunting one of my really good friends. Um, who lives in Vancouver out here now with me, um, he, he dropped this on my radar. I was like, have you looked at this company, this MeToWe company? Like it combines education and travel. It seems right up your alley. They're hiring for salespeople. You should go for it. Um, and as soon as I watched one of their videos, it was, I think it was one to Kenya. I was like, I'm sold. I want to hundred percent work for this place. Mm -hmm. um, and I applied and I just happened to apply when they were looking for a growing sales team. Cause I think at the time it was you and like two other, three other people. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and I got lucky and I thought I, I thought I bombed my interview. I don't think I told anyone this. I thought I bombed my interview and then it ended up working out. So what's interesting about this is you had a sense of what you wanted to do around travel and teaching combine into this opportunity through work at me to we um but it involved a completely new skill set around sales which totally. uh, again how, how did you go about like thinking am i able to do this job and and was this the right pivot for me to make at, at that time what were your what was you thinking there my thinking was i need a job and I had no clue if I was going to be good at it or bad at it. I didn't know if I was a salesperson or not a salesperson. I had no idea. It was a total gamble. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that was the beauty of it is I, ju I jumped into it with no expectations of myself. Um, and I think that's what allowed me to be successful um, at the beginning of my career. So I, I obviously knew what sales was, um, but I I didn't at that point know how challenging sales could be, how nuanced and complicated it could be, how thrilling it could be, how pivotal sales was to a lot of businesses. Like I had none of that. I had no fucking clue. Mm -hmm. um, and my first day of training was Mark Henry giving me my phone and a media wee brochure. And I was just like, call these leads. I'm like, what's a lead? <laughs> you know? Um, but yeah, I had no notions of sales and I had no idea if I was going to be good at it at all. I just knew I had to call a ton of people um, and try to convince them of the value of sending their kid abroad. That's mm. all I had to do in whatever way I could. What, what did you learn from that experience? What, it sounds like it was, it was a grind if you're, you know, and I know this cause I was there <laughs> doing this with you. So it yeah. is a grind. What did you learn from your early days, you know, picking up the phone and having these conversations with, with prospective clients and, yeah, I think the biggest thing I learned, and again, it's not revolutionary, but it takes a ton of persistence and hard work um, to do sales and to do it well. And I think people don't, I, not, I'm, I'm generalizing here, but yeah, it, it just takes a ton of persistence. Um, that's what I learned. And I had to find the energy and the motivation to muster through every day those calls and find ways to wade through constant rejection in all shapes and forms. And, and that was really hard for me because at, at that stage, I took, I took most no's pretty personally mm. um, because I, I looked at it as a, as a reflection of my ability. And so there was that that was challenging. But, but you know, what I also learned on the plus side is it was just fun being like a scrappy 
lean team because we also got to do things differently try new strategies um try new ways to get leads uh trainings between us wasn't really formal it was very it was like a culture of just like live coaching constantly um and so as much as I learned that it takes persistence and and grit and tenacity and will and motivation to be good at it, it it also allowed me to be free and creative and um, collaborative and experimental in the when I, in the way I went about things. And I I think my me to we early days I haven't since then experienced that level of scrappiness and innovation and and growth since then. And I think it's because we were just starting out very grassroots. Mm -hmm. Right. What, what helped for you? So I think for a lot of um, people in sales, one of the biggest things they have to, you know, work on is, is accepting not everybody's going to buy from you. Um, Rejection is, is part of it. How did you make it feel less personal? Um, I don't think it's ever become less personal. Uh, and I think that's what helps actually. Uh, I remember this still sticks out to me to this day. My first no that I took super personally is I called this dad to ask him a question about what his daughter needed to go on her trip to India. And he said to me, this was like verbatim was why are you calling me? Are you an idiot? And then he hung up the phone on me. And I remember I went into an office or went downstairs. I can't remember. I went to a private space and I just started bawling, crying because I was so hurt um, that this man thought I was stupid when I was asking him a clarifying question, sir. Um, but, but yeah, I think, I think rejection is personal. I do. And I, and I think that's why it's good. Um, is at least for me, because I, I look at at rejection now on a daily basis as fueling power and motivation to do better next time. Um, so do I take every rejection personally now? Totally do. Um, and I think that, that that to me is a reflection that I care. And I think that's important, an important distinction. You know, I, I think that's a great lesson in, in being able to handle those early rejections. And those, it's, it's a bit like, um, you know, I like to talk about or I like to think in my head, um, you know, when you're writing something new or creating a new podcast episode or, you know, doing something innovative at work, whatever it is, you'll always feel this resistance like the sense of, you know, am I good enough here or nobody's going to watch this or listen to this, that voice will never go away. That's always going to be there, but it's more about how you can handle it and how you can tame the resistance rather than just trying to kind of will it away because it never will. And totally. It's a good thing if you do, because that means you're not pushing your boundaries. 100% agree with that. I think it's not about pushing the resistance aside because I actually don't think that's helpful or productive, but it's, it's, or, or letting the resistance overtake you. That's not good either. Right. Um, but it's, yeah, recognizing the resistance and going, okay, like, cool. How can I use this as fueling power for me mm-hmm. to move forward? And I, I think it's that key piece that, at least for me, has, for the people that I've experienced, the successful ones in my life, I mean, that's been the key for them. You know, one of the things that I think people think about being a sales leader in an organization is it's kind of a tall white guy doing <laughs> the talking right yeah. um, 
no offense to tall white guys out there, but <laughs> uh, that's just the image that you have, the, the Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross type of environment. But you, you are a female leader in, in sales and, and not just female, but you're also Korean, which is even more of, you know, a rarity. You know, what, what kind of challenges have you seen being in that position and, and how do you hope, you know, you might be able to change that? Oh man, that's such a loaded question. Um, and I'm still figuring it out and I do struggle with it. Uh, and this has been like a, actually a, a topic over the last couple of days with some of my girlfriends in very similar positions. I, you know, it's hard to say, it's hard to pinpoint what the challenge is so far because it's still a little new. Um, one that I'm discovering is, this is just my experience, but I feel like I, as, as a sales leader, a woman sales leader in a, in a predominantly male dominated industry where most of our executives are males, um, I feel like I sometimes am either coddled a little bit more or there, there's this perception that I need more help um, or or even that I measured more on my potential as opposed to my actual proven ability and value. I actually don't know if this is making sense to you. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but lately, I'm, and again, like I'm creating my own narrative with these experiences, but, but that's how I feel like sometimes it comes off with me. Um, it's like, are you okay? Are you doing okay? Do you need help? Just checking in. Are you fine? And, and it could genuinely be people care and are like legit checking in on me. Um, if it not were for this nagging thing in the back of my mind being like, if I was a male, like if I was a male stepping into the position, would you be asking me if I'm okay this much? Right. Um, or if I was, if if I was a dude, um, you know, would you have promoted me earlier or would would you have hesitated less, um, to promote me into a director seat, um, as well, because, you know, what was really interesting for me was the transition into be- actually becoming a director and, and that the sort of political landscape around those kind of decisions. And I had never been privy to that before. Um, and at the end of the day, it all worked out. I'm, I'm a director now, but I felt like the climb to prove myself as a director felt harder than it needed to be. And so, again, what goes through the back of my mind is if I was a dude, would it have been this hard? for you to make a decision to promote me into a director seat, would it have? Mm. Um, and again, like there's a lot of other contacts, a, a lot of other things at play. I understand an organization has to think about a lot of different things, but those, are, I feel like those are the challenges I face sometimes is, is I feel like, cause I'm a young woman as a new leader that I need more help than I do. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds so first world problems, but that's how it comes across. Um, I think a lot of people in, in that position as a new leader, um, as a female leader, it's, I'm sure they're feeling that. So it's, it's helpful, I think, for them to hear what, you know, you're experiencing. So I just want to make sure we get to, uh, final bit around your Ikigai and, um, Mm -hmm. how this all culminates into, what you're trying to do in your life. And um, I know there's stuff that you also do on the side, right? So you talk about Korean culture and yep. what else are you doing that is allowing you to kind of be the fulsome, full version of Diana? 
Totally. Um, yeah. Well, that you know this. You know this about me. But that fat baby never left me. Um, it's still hungry. Oh, full circle. <laughs> full, very round baby. Full, yeah. very round baby circle. Yeah. So other than sales and the the cultural piece and all that kind of stuff that you just mentioned, travel. Um, I am like a foodie through and through. Like I said, like I chased my mom around the house for shrimp crackers. That that was the beginning of my love for food. You just say um, shrimp crackers? Yeah, man. You know, the, like the yeah. big Korean shrimp back cracker bags? So yeah. good. This, the smell makes me salivate, you know? Um, but I, yeah, I, I, I'm a foodie at heart. Like I, I'm a self-proclaimed foodie. Like I've never wor- I'm worked as a chef or in the restaurant industry or anything like that. I just like genuinely enjoy food. Um, and a lot of my life is actually based around food. So if I'm not even at work, I'm thinking about food um, or I'm like buying donuts for the team and <laughs> that kind of stuff. But um, I, I recently launched a, a travel, uh, it's a sort of a combo like travel and food blog called She's All Fat, P-H-A-T, look it up in the Urban Dictionary. P- um, like fat as in like the cool fat? Like what? Yeah, what is- like as in the cool fat. Okay. It's a play on the word fat, like like big and fat, and also fat, like cool and fat. You see? You see the right. double entendre? Yeah. That's how it was named. Um, but yeah, and then I wanted to, and the reason why I did it is because I have, I go to all these like amazing places to eat, like everything from your, your holes in the walls to your one-star Michelin restaurants. Um, and I, I, I couldn't find a way to share it other than on Instagram or when I came back and like was telling people randomly. And I, I, I am always looking up good places to eat. And, and what I've found is when I travel, I've, I've never been able to find one area that gives me the good places and in which I should go and eat and why. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to, she's all fat. I wanted to create this blog one because it's just like my alter ego my saucer fierce my outlet and it's just really fun um but also because you know for people like me out there who just like love to eat and like don't know where to go and when they're traveling and when they're local they can go to this platform and and see what that looks like but yeah i think my my dream is to eat as a at a three-star michelin restaurant and so i'm trying to figure out oh my second dream is to meet gordon ramsay Great. So if I could combine the two, I know he's he's probably not the best chef I could pick. There's so many amazing ones out there that's not on Hell's Kitchen, but I don't even care because it's Gordon Ramsay. But those are my two dreams: is to eat at a three-star Michelin restaurant and to meet Gordon Ramsay. Yeah. So <laughs> you really have um, just a variety of interests and kind of yeah areas of interest and, and things that drive your life in in many different ways um and i'm just wondering you know when we talk about ikigai and and that word around you know finding your meaning and purpose in life what does that mean to you now yeah finding your purpose in life that's um it's very hard cuz i think i feel like your pr- purpose in life could change changes as you as you grow mm-hmm. um i think my purpose in life is if there's ways through my my work as a director as a manager um if there was ways through my blog with my blog with traveling and food that i could leave a small footprint on somebody who crosses that path whether they report to me or just like find my blog or 
whatever, whatever that looks like. If I can leave a small footprint that helps them become a better whatever, a better salesperson, a better person, a better foodie, a better travel person. Um, I think that's, that to me would be my ikigai mm. is I want to feel like I have some, I leave some sort of impact on people um, through their, through their paths with me, through their interactions with me, um, big or small. Um, and I know that sounds really vague, but like what, what fuels me is I'm, I'm like a developer at heart. Like if, if I can, if I can find a way through my skills, my experience, my conversation, whatever, my coaching ability, whatever, to help somebody else in whatever facet of their life, like that to me is my purpose. Um, and I think that's why I love leading people so much. I think that's why I love sales so much. I think that's why I love food and travel so much because all these things are connected to human development. Um, and yeah, I think, I think that's, I think that would be my key guy. If I were to articulate it. Yeah. I love that. Awesome. And how, if anybody is interested in anything that we talked about today, um, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? What, what's your, what's your social handles that you'd be, uh, comfortable sharing on this podcast? Yeah, they can follow me on Instagram. Um, either she's all fat, which is my travel blog or D chunkster at <laughs> with you which is my uh personal account um yeah th those are great they can find me on those channels and i'm more than willing to talk to anybody like for anything so reach out great well until next time until next time oh my god i'm i'm, I'm stressed now i i wonder if other people are going to be just as fun as me you know <laughs> no, they will they will, <laughs> oh, they will. <laughs> <laughs> no, this might cool. have set a bar yeah um cool. thanks so much diana thank you Thanks for listening to this episode of the Ikigai Project. Thank you to Hugh for the theme music. And take good care for now, everyone.